Welcome to Mark My Words, a podcast that not only aims to inspire and teach the listener about entrepreneurship, it also aims to give my guests an opportunity to talk about their unique journey in entrepreneurship and life. So join me and my guests as we meet at the crossroads on Mark My Words. Mark my words, I talk a lot about resilience and I try to talk a lot about overcoming uh, obstacles and I know that a lot of my guests have come on with some great stories and hopefully I myself have helped with that and have imparted a lot of my wisdom and experience with overcoming obstacles in life. But As I prepared to talk to Marty Strong, I soon realized that, you know, not to trivialize my own life, but a lot of what I've overcome in my life and the resilience I've shown isn't half as much as what Marty has gone through in his journey. And just the fact that he is or was a SEAL officer and also even a black belt. I mean, this is one tough dude right here that we're listening to and that I have the privilege to talk to. He's a CEO, entrepreneur, SEAL officer. I mean, he has done a lot in his life. And Marty, welcome to Mark My Words. How are you doing today? Hey, Mark. Yeah, I'm doing good. Doing good. Awesome. Great to have you here on the show. You're one of my first guests since I moved to Florida. So as you can see, I have the cat tree behind me. I'm not quite uh, where I was with all the music and stuff hanging up, but we're going to do an episode anyway. And we are going to hear your awesome story. And when I do this show, I usually start out by going all the way back. And as I can see here, you study business administration. And my first question is, was that something that you kind of had in your in your gut to study as you got into college? Or were you just like, well, you know, this is pretty broad. We'll see where this takes me. Yeah, I think, you know, most answers to my questions about my own life's path don't really reveal any great planning on my part. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of short-sighted things that in one way or another ended up putting me in a position where a door of an opportunity, you know, opened up that was different, but it was compelling. And so I jumped through it. So you know, to answer your question, I, uh, as a, I did 20 years as a SEAL, 10 of it, I was an enlisted SEAL and the other 10, I was an officer. And as I got close to the middle of my, um, second four year hitch as an enlisted guy, I started looking around and said, okay, am I going to do this forever? Am I going to be able to do this forever? Cause you get injuries are a big thing in the special operations world. It's, it's kind of like, uh, being an NFL pro NFL player. You, you have a very short shelf life and you fall off of something, get hit by something. Uh, training is, is as tough, if not tougher than, than a lot of combat situations. So you, um, you start thinking about it. And usually it's when somebody else gets hurt and they realize they're done, you know, and they're 24 years old. So I start thinking, what do I want to do or be? And most of the people that I knew that, that had uh, left the SEAL teams and, and left the Navy they're having a hard time. And the, the, the easiest trans, you know, transferable skills or skill set is to go into law enforcement because you're an expert in all kinds of weapons and tactics and you, you're, um, 
you know, the fact that you were a SEAL means you, you, you probably bring some kind of higher end capability and a lot of other mission planning, things like that. It's not a direct correlation to, to law enforcement, but you'd certainly fit in, say, a big city SWAT team or in the FBI hostage rescue team or something like that. So that's kind of where most of the people were going. I didn't know if I wanted to do that. If I was going to not be a SEAL anymore, did I want to do something that was kind of like SEAL, but not a SEAL? So you know, there were a couple of the guys around me that were going to school and all of them were getting a business degree. So in talking to them and, and asking them, well, why are you doing this? They said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a more functional general purpose education than say a liberal arts degree, because look around you, everywhere you go, you drive down the street, you're trying to buy businesses. So I thought, okay, sure, whatever. So then I, <laughs> so I, I did everything I had to do and, and, uh, and got my undergraduate in business administration. And when I was in Austria, I followed through and got my, uh, my master's in management kind of for the same reason. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, but it kind of linked up with my undergrad. So, okay, now I'm seeing it. You became a SEAL well before you decided to try your hand at getting a degree, correct? Uh, it was about eight years, I guess. I mean, I, what I did was I, I entered a lot of different programs the military has to get you kind of like a community college approach to get you through your first couple of years of prerequisite courses. So you're, you're kind of set up for the second, the second half of college, whatever that undergrad discipline is going to be. I got all that done over a period of time, maybe four or five years. And when I went to California at my eight year point, when I, when I was thinking all these, these really brilliant planning thoughts about what I was going to do, I decided, well, you know, I'm only, 20 months or so away from having my undergrad, what do I want to focus on? And so that's when I kind of closed it out, but it was a, probably a all in about a five and a half, six year process of picking up some credits and then not going to school, then picking up some credits. I mean, obviously my day job had me traveling all over the world and going different places. So it was, it was very hard to, to sit in a classroom. And back then they didn't have as many options as they do now for like virtual learning and you know, you, you pretty much had to either sit in a classroom or do something close to that, or there wasn't any opportunity. So coming out of high school, it, it's my understanding that to be a SEAL and to last, especially as long as you did, you've got to be like tough as hell. Did you know? I mean, maybe I don't understand. I probably don't understand since I'm just regular civilian here, but did you know going out of high school and into that, like what you were getting into, like how tough is it really to be a SEAL? I, I, I didn't join the Marine Corps because I didn't think I was tough enough to be a Marine. So I joined the Navy. Gives Back to what I said about, it, I don't really have a good planning track record. And I went into the Navy to become a radar and air traffic control expert. I went to that school for 17 weeks. And while I was in boot camp, I, I had uh, been put into, into a swim pool area to, to test whether my, I was an AAU swimmer when I was a kid. So they were putting together a relay competition, relay race. And about eight guys all said they were fast swimmers. So the guy in charge of us said, well, I'm taking you out of the pool to see who really is fast. And it turns out, that when we got there, the pool was being used. So the, the guy in charge went up and negotiated some, some lane time. And the deal was that we had to do whatever this guy said and we couldn't disrupt what he was, he was doing. So we ended up getting the pool. We swam, we swam the distances that the guy said we had to swim. And then, um, and then there was pull-ups and push-ups, And eventually we had to go out. And by this time it was dark and go out and do a mile and a half run with boots on. So when that was all done, the group that was in the pool, when we showed up, which was around 70 ish guys was down to only about 13 of us doing the run. I think it was two or three of us were asked to stay and they handed us clipboards to just fill all this stuff out and then get out of here. So I filled it all out and went back to my boot camp company. What I didn't realize was that was the seal test. And that was just the preliminary physical fitness test to just get, considered for the program 
And I didn't know that whole backstory until, you know, eight years after I went through the training, when I came back and I was actually the senior enlisted guy in charge of the first phase of training where hell week and everything is. And I was able to go in and in the archives and look at my own record. And then I started putting all those, those kind of strain all those pearls together and went, Oh my God, that's what happened. I, I really didn't know. But the end result of that was the day we, we had graduation from air traffic control and radar school. I thought I was getting orders to a ship in the Mediterranean. Instead, they gave me orders to something called seal training, which I'd never heard of. And I ended up out there in Cornell, California. And, um, one of the guys there talked me into volunteering and staying. He said, you can always go back to the ship if you don't like this. It seemed very, you know, it wasn't a hard sell. It was a very um, easy going. You know, do you, did, you know how to swim? Oh, yeah, I swam competitively for eight years. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Uh, are you afraid of the ocean? No, I lived in Hawaii for two years and surfed. And I think, oh, that's great. You know, did you ever play any physical sports? Yeah, I played football, primarily football. Well, did your coaches ever yell at you? Did they punish you if you didn't run fast? Well, yeah that's kind of how it is here. And I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, I'm 17, 17 and a half by that time. And, uh, and you know, the, the answer to the question is, you know, did you know you're gonna be tough enough? I think there was probably hundred percent of the guys that quit probably thought they were tough enough because they actually were thinking that way. Like I'm tough enough for this. And the 25% of the class that didn't quit, I think were a little bit more humble and a little bit, more on their toes and you know, the ball, of their toes kind of waiting for where the, where the, where it was coming from. And that's the kind of mindset you had to have to succeed. And you also had to not get too upset about always being tired and physically tired and being yelled at and having your mind messed with by the instructor. So the average for my class was the same as the average it is today. It's 75% uh, quit or are washed out, uh, the vast majority of them, of those numbers are from quitting. 19, early 1960s, it was the same thing as it is today. My class had 125 or 126 that started, and we had 13 original students six months later that graduated. So if the definition of tough is getting through that, yeah, but you know, I'm at, actually I was tested so many more ways and so much, and so much more difficult arduous situations as a seal later on and they tell you that they say this isn't the worst it's going to it's going to be if you make it through here we're like yeah right <laughs> well we put you up on a mountaintop 300 miles the, um, north of the arctic circle where you're in a you're in a uh, nordic whiteout and and you haven't had any food and you're running out of water and yeah yeah and you're freezing yeah buds training is tough but there's a lot more there's tougher people out there in the world than seals and there's tougher situations waiting for everybody after SEAL training. Well, you had me thinking that I could potentially have been a SEAL until you got past the first two points. After that, I'm like, okay, I couldn't deal with getting messed with. And, like, I feel like I'm one of those people that are, like, you know, grounded and humble and, you know, mentally tough, but not half as tough as somebody who got through all that, which is you. So either you, way, to me, you're a pretty tough guy. And you even said in your uh, bio here that uh, you got shot at some point. Like, what's it? Shot at. Shot what? at. Shot at. Oh, so shot you mean, at. Oh, yeah. Oh. I've been mortared, rocketed, shot at. Uh, I was hit with a, with a spent uh, nine millimeter round in, in training. The ricocheted off a wall. Uh, so yeah, the point of all that is, you know, you go out there, for example, we had lots of guys that, that lost their lives in training, preparing for war and then war comes and then you lose people obviously in war because the training is very intense and it pushes you beyond what we think the actual, you know, war experience is going to require of you. So it feels like it's easier in some ways. Now, the only thing that you don't do is you don't actually shoot people in training. So you know, if the bad guys are out there and they shoot you, then being shot at initially is, is a shock. But after a while, you kind of get used to it. And then if, when somebody finally does get shot or somebody around you gets shot, that's I don't think I ever got used to that. But you you learn to deal with it, you know, and and those are the only two elements that you can't put into training. You can't actually 
shoot at anybody in training and you can't see what happens to yourself and, and to the person that gets shot emotionally and everything. I mean, well, and this is, it is surprising though how many people they train you to prepare to, to help somebody who's shot or wounded or hurt or something. And you, you listen to the classes and you practice on each other and all that's okay. Yeah, whatever. And then when it happens, I mean, everybody goes into automatic mode. You get, everybody's just doing everything they've got to do. It just bam instantly, no delay. Nobody has to give an order. So um, that's an interesting, that's an interesting experience. Well, so far what I'm picking up on, you talk about how you didn't really plan a whole lot up to that point. And I almost feel like that mindset really helped you as a SEAL, just as a complete outside observer. You know, you kind of rolled with the punches, it sounds like. And it almost sounds like, obviously, you know, we'll get into your entrepreneurial side, but I'm almost feeling like that is what helped you to just become what you've become. And you can answer that as we go along here. That's purely an assumption on my part. But I do want to ask, uh, when did you get to the point where you started thinking more entrepreneurially and shifting gears outside of your SEAL career? I think, you know, I was, I was exposed to it as a teenager. I worked from when I was 13 until I went in the Navy, lots of different jobs. And except for maybe one, one job in a, in a large grocery store, everything else I was working for small businesses, a lot of times family businesses, you know, so you see that you see the pressure they're under, you see, and you listen to them tell you how much, how much money they're going to spend on you and how much work you have to do in this fixed amount of time, because that just, they have to get their money's worth out of you, you know, and your temporary help usually in those cases. So I, I got exposed to that. I also tried to sell light bulbs as a cub scout. I tried to do um, a couple of things along those lines that I realized it's really tough to do that. It's really tough just to knock on a door, ask a stranger for anything. So I had a little bit of exposure to it and then completely, you know, zeroed out for about the next 13 years, no exposure whatsoever. And then about three years into, uh, into my 10 years as an officer, I was helping the SEAL community was, was looking at what we were going to be when we grew up essentially, because in 1986, the United States created the U S special operations command, which is in Tampa. And that and they consolidated all the special ops, the green berets, the SEALs, underneath this new organization. And the very first thing everybody did was, was a turf battle. So who's gonna control this, who's gonna control that? It was the turf battle, literally like ge geography around the world. It was also which missions were gonna go to which group. And when I was pulled in to work on some of this, totally unaware of it, they were actually, everybody's fighting for market share just like corporations do. Except that they were trying to justify it kind of like to their parents, which was, you know, the Secretary of Defense and the head of um, the uh, Undersecretary for Special Operations, who would make the decision on who was going to do what. So that's that's when I started to get fascinated with the whole idea of obviously it's a military context, but the whole idea of you have a certain toolbox of capabilities, and you have a certain market, and you have a certain, I guess, strategic assumption an operating assumption of what you are and what you're trying to do, and what your value is in that market space. Right. And then suddenly you're being challenged by somebody else who says, yeah, we do that too, even better. So I was watching this going on. I was listening to the debates. I was listening to the, I'd be in the Admiral's office, listening to all these guys uh, talk about the implications of this. I mean, the good thing about being under one umbrella was there's lots of money and they weren't going to keep cutting uh, special operations every time a war ended like they did before that. The bad thing was when we were the only thing in the Navy, there was no, there was, there was no competition. There wasn't another group of SEALs somewhere in the Navy that were trying to you know, take a job. So that was when, I, and again, this isn't a strategic level, but it was about, it was about market share. It was about marketing and branding because you were, I, mean, I, used to, I was a pitch guy at one point for this whole process. I was standing in, in uh, commander's conferences 
laying out the justifications for why the seals should have this certain sector, you know, this certain thing. And I had to be comfortable talking to it. And they would ask me questions. You no, know, they would, they knew I was a junior officer. I wasn't the Admiral, but I had to be ready and briefed and prepped. Like I was a public affairs officer, almost to be able to smile at a really angry question and not, you know, deflect it. And, but it was all about pitching. It was about pitching the brand for, to the point where you could either retain your market share, your mission, your, your, the money associated with the mission, because there was money involved in this too, or expand or, or define it and frame it the way you wanted to do, uh, or the way you wanted it to be framed. And that was really cool. And it wasn't too long after that, I started looking at the stock market and I realized there was a correlation with corporations and the competition. And obviously I, I understood that, you know, for my degree programs, I wasn't completely uh, ignorant of what was going on. But up until that point, my focus had been 100% go find bad guys, you know, and train, train my guys to go find bad guys. So once I started lo looking at the stock market and started reading about different companies, I said, well, okay, this sounds a lot like what I've just done, this market share, this competition, this turf battle, the disruption. So the creation of this umbrella organization was a disruption. It didn't exist in the whole history of the United States because all of us were from different services, but we belonged to a different boss. I mean, that was a whole new thing and nobody knew how to do it. You know, or the four-star in charge didn't know how to do it. So, so that, you know, can, we didn't say, use the word or term disruption, but that kind of chaos, a little bit of crisis of, of identity and all that was all happening. And then when I started looking at the market, looking at companies, they started realizing, wow, this is what happens in in the regular world, in the commercial markets, this is this is a daily kind of uh, struggle that's going on, and that slowly started leading me my last uh, seven years into learning more about business, reading more about business. I ended up getting my my uh, graduate degree. I started to uh, watch business shows. I started to trade stocks and play around with that a little bit. It all kind of led me towards, even though I wasn't an entrepreneur. I started to understand from the bottom up how entrepreneurs become, you know, medium-sized businesses and how they evolve into larger businesses and the competition at each of those levels and how all the different elements play. So I, I was, I was ready when I got out, I was, at least I thought I was, I was ready to do all that, deal with all that. And uh, the one thing I didn't know how to do that I found out I needed to do like on day one was sell. Because the last time I'd sold anything to anybody was probably light bulbs when I was 11 years old. Well, I'll tell you what. I was a furniture salesman for about a year or two, and I always ranked like the lowest in my store, quite possibly in the whole company. It wasn't like a huge company. They had like 15, 20 stores, but I was a terrible salesman. Sales is hard. So, yeah, I mean, how did you overcome that? What did you do to improve your salesmanship? So here, kind of back to my, um, my lack of, of uh, insight at that point in my life. Now, I'm 37 years old at this point. So I look at it and I go, all right, I'm going to go work for this company and I'm going to manage money. And I go through four months, excuse me, uh, four weeks of this initial onboarding training, which was all about all the special services and all the things that the company has to offer for us. We're financial advisors. Then I walk into this small branch and the manager says, okay, you know, we're going to sit you right here and this is your computer and uh, there's your phone. Good luck. Turns around and walks out. And I'm like, where are my clients? At this point, I still thought, <laughs> I really thought that, they were going to give me clients to help. Just like as an officer, they would give you guys to lead. That wasn't the case. The deal was you had to go out, meet strangers, convince them to open an account with you, convince them to put some money, all their money, whatever, into that account, and also convince them to let you invest that, spend that money in some way and put it at risk. And at 37 years old, I look like I was 27 years old. And in the first day or two, I realized I'd made a huge mistake. So, and there was, there was no salary. It was a pure commission deal. So I thought, all right, 
I can quit because obviously this isn't what I thought it was. Just go find a real job. I had little kids and stuff, you know, how to consider that. Or I can try to find somebody who knows something about selling and, and so I can get some clients. So I started calling around and my father-in-law at the time was a salesman. He was, he was, and he's also a really great guy, very calming personality. So he basically said, look, you know, it, I, I don't have a college degree. I was in the Navy for four years. I get out, I did all kinds of odd jobs. And 10 years ago, I started working for WR Grace Corporation. And now I make $350,000 a year without a college degree. So if, if some swabby off of a destroyer <laughs> can walk in and, and just start, you know, learning how to do it, you can learn how to do it. And it won't take you as long as it took me. So then he would ask me lots of questions about what our products were. I'd send him information. And, everything. and a lot of it was what did I want to do and what, what kind of thing did I want to sell? Cause you had such a huge, you know, list of things you could possibly do every stock, right. Every mutual fund, or do you want to do bonds or, you know, it was, it was, it was overwhelming because I could, I had to pick something to sell and then I had to find the people to sell it to. And I think at that point I was the worst salesman in the state of Maryland because I didn't even understand what I didn't understand. And then I slowly started listening, taking his advice. I uh, went out and got um, these old VHS tape courses and on selling and went through all that. Uh, I started looking at the magazine, the company put out their success stories picked up the phone, called every one of the success story people. How'd you do it? What did you do? Hey, by the way, how did you start? Did you have a problem in the beginning? I was just started, became, I became a mooch for information and, and training or mentoring from anybody and everything. And yeah, probably about five or six months later, after pounding plastic every day, calling 500 people a day and walking roads and knocking on doors, cold, cold walking. And I finally figured out that I'm better doing seminars. And that I come across trustworthy. I do look young. I mean, I, I look really young then. But when it's something about when you're the when you're the considered the subject matter expert in town and you're up on the you know, up in the front of a, of a group, they give you that. Like they give that to teachers and they give that to clergymen. So you get a, you get positional kind of power, and they give you a pass on experience in it because you're there, right? You're you wouldn't be up there in front of them if you didn't know what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah. So my first seminar, I ended up getting about 17 clients and I think I had like five at the time and those 17 over the course of the next year referred me probably another 30 or 40. And I just did seminars every month and it worked. So for me, selling had to be essentially teaching and standing up there and getting people to trust me and think that I knew what I was doing when it came to handling their money. And that's how I ended up succeeding in that, that particular profession. So before I talk about how you transitioned into like true entrepreneurship and how you made that transition from here, one thing I do want to ask, I didn't know when I was going to ask, but you mentioned earlier about making that transition from, you know, coaching your team to find the bad guys and to understand who's a bad guy. How did you use that experience and training to help you in sales and in life and entrepreneurship? Do you think you're a good judge of character because of that training? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, you know, you get to a certain point, I think in life where you start coming up with formulas based on your experience and enough experience, you end up having some wisdom, you know, and judgment. I pretty much evolved to the point where I believe everybody's perfect until proven otherwise. And I probably changed my mindset and, and latched onto that about 20 years ago. Here's, here's the reason why, if, if you you know, you have, you have the other, the other extreme, right? Everybody's evil and trying to hurt you until proven otherwise. I just didn't want to live that way. And I, I, I was burned. I was burned by some guys in the Navy that I worked for that didn't seem to line up with what I thought was, you know, truth, honor, kind of the American way. Um, they weren't doing anything illegal. They were just 
really bad leaders and they, they treated people differently than I thought they should have been treated, me included. Luckily, it was only two or three in 20 years, so it wasn't a lot. But there's also a lot of people that I saw that, that came from other units that were kind of almost like a foster kind of a situation where they're kind of abused guys. You know, they were they're really smart, but they were told to shut up and stop throwing out ideas. That's that you're living your pay grade. You know, that's not you. And so they were miserable. And then you find that if you listen to these guys, they come with a rep and the rep is there are no at all. They keep, you know, causing problems. And for some reason I was able to turn these people into productive seals to the point, unfortunately for me, to the point where I was becoming a magnet for that kind of a situation. But here's what I thought, you know, why am I successful? Well, the reason I was successful is because of that, that point of view. I didn't look at them coming in with their baggage. They weren't, you know, a glass half full. They, they didn't, I just said, I don't care about that. You're, you've got an A plus grade in my, in my book. You're, and I tell them that. And I said, you can do anything you want to do. And that's either going to keep you where you're at, which is perfect. Or it's going to start to erode my, my uh, opinion of you. It's all on you. But, you know, trust me, this is how you're starting. You're starting at the top. And that always seemed to resonate with people. And I've done that. I've done that all the way through. The, my book, Be, Be Nimble, that came out in January. I talk about that a lot. Um, that you have to let people fail. You have to let people know that uh, they're starting from that high position. And now, does that mean I get burned from time to time in business? Yep. I've had bad hires that smiled and said everything they were supposed to say, and they weren't A pluses. You know, they had an agenda, or they they were just good actors or actresses. Okay, again, maybe three or four in a couple of decades. That's not too bad. I'd rather live. I'd rather live in a very positive way than go around thinking everybody's a bad guy. In uniform, you know, literally the bad guys are defined for you by the U.S. military, by the U.S. government. But then when you get into to a combat environment, it gets really complicated. It, I mean, there, there hasn't been, well, maybe there's been one clean war, maybe Desert Storm, that didn't have civilians picking up guns and being part of the, the enemy force. It started in Vietnam, pretty much. In World War II, everybody in the World War II, Korea, you know, you have a uniform, I have a uniform, civilians get out of the way. But in Vietnam, you know, kids were, throwing grenades into tents and killing Marines and women were doing the same thing. So everybody's a potential bad guy. Right. And, and unfortunately that is kind of the way the world's been since the early sixties with the exception of desert storm, because it was basically our guys in uniform against Saddam Hussein's guys in uniform. But you know, the second time we went into Iraq, it started out that way. And then in 2004 with, with the, uh, the rise of the insurgency, it turned back into the other thing. You know, who do you trust? Who? So, so combat's a little bit different, and um, you don't always get to pick and choose who you want to who you want to say is a bad guy or a good guy. Well, I'll tell you, just from hearing your story about getting into the seals and being successful that way, and then being a successful leader, you're definitely tapping into like a good mindset that I think I, I wish more people would have. And I'm not saying that I'm a hundred percent up to the Marty strong uh, mindset, but I know that the overall uh, attitude and mindset, I definitely think that's something that I strive for. I think we all should strive for to just be humble and be in touch with ourselves in the same way. And I I think that speaks volumes for the success that you've had. And I also think, you know, we're, we all become successful in our own way. We all have our ways of doing things. And I myself am a little more of a planner than kind of just, you know, you. Like, just not really, you know, just kind of, I don't want to say going with flow, but it sounds like you're really like in touch with your instincts and what your gut is telling you. And it sounds like you have a lot of really good conversations with yourself and just, yeah, that's a, that's a, 
that's another part of getting through SEAL training in the beginning, this, this selection process. You know, the voice inside your head, the guys that quit lose the lose the argument. Right. Because the voice inside your head is trying to give you a reason why this doesn't make any sense for you. So you have to kind of, instead of listening to the voice inside your head, and this goes on all through my life, doesn't really, not just SEAL training per se, the voices in your head, if you're listening to them, then they're in charge. You're not in charge. You have to, you have to take charge of the narrative in your head and you, you have to drive that narrative. And and that it's, a, it's an easy thing to say, but it's also kind of an easy thing to do once you've heard somebody say that. And the next time the voices start saying, you know, you said you were going to go out and do two miles of walking every day, you know, to, to lose weight, or you said you were going to do this, you know, and you see, you start to hear the voices say, yeah, but you're busy. You know, you've got, you don't have that much time in your hands. You can do it next month. Well, that's that voice inside of your head telling you what to do. And you basically have to take charge of that narrative and say, no. I decided I was going to do this. I'm going to do it. And if, if I don't have enough time to do two miles, I'll do one mile until I have enough time to do two miles, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to not start. And, and that just transcends, doesn't matter whether you're a SEAL or you're a business person, it doesn't matter what you do uh, for a living or whether you're a father or a mother or a kid um, trying to move through life. I, I planned, I'm a, I'm kind of known among my friends and associates as a like the ultimate supreme planner i've got a uh, uh master black belt in lean six sigma which is extremely you know micro analysis of work processes and things yet at the same time i have no problem with with breaking processes in half and starting from scratch i can't i think the difference there is i plan to go to law school and then somebody convinced me to to go into financial services. And so I dropped six months of planning, taking the LSAT and everything, you know, methodically preparing to go to law school when I was getting out of the Navy. And I dropped everything and jumped, jumped into uh, financial services. And then I told you my, my scene, my, my poor tearful scene, I suddenly found myself thinking, oh, what the hell did I just do to myself? You know? Um, yeah, you're right. It's some of its instinct. Some of it is you plan, you have a contingency plan for, for your life or for whatever you've got, because you have to have some kind of a plan. It, it exercises your mind to think through all the, the risks and, and risks and threats and the resource demands, et cetera. And then all of a sudden somebody walks up and says, Hey, you want to take a ride in my new Corvette? And you go, okay. And you do it. And the person that takes you on the ride offers you a job. That's twice as much as you get paid right now. And not that they were planning on taking you on that Corvette ride to offer you a job, but during the course of the ride, you guys hit it off and he thought, well, you know, I'm looking for this guy. What do you do now? Next thing you know, you got a job, that's twice, twice the pay. I don't know if that's good karma or kismet or the gods, whatever you want to call it. But sometimes the universe talks to you that way. And even if you have a plan, you have to say, well, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to explore it. And if, if it's a dead end, fine, you still have your plan. Well, I think you tapped into something that I've always tried to practice myself, which is to not leave any doors necessarily closed. I mean, don't be overly uh, open, but, you know, somebody offers me a Corvette ride, as you put it, and maybe there's somebody that I just no, I'm not looking for anything from them, but maybe they're a colleague or somebody I used to work with who now is like a manager or a VP somewhere, you know, whatever. I'm just thinking of taking that ride and, you know, just have, you know, keeping up that uh, networking. So I think, yeah. yeah. A, lot, a lot of times it's, so think of it as a plan is, is, a compass course you're going to go through the woods and you're not going through the woods just because you want to go through the woods you got to get from point a to point b and you're going along and you pop into a little clearing and as you get to the other side of the clearing you look to the right and there's this beautiful path and you walk over and look at it and it's going north and you're going north now would you walk back to where you were but would you notice the path 
and smash through the trees again, <laughs> following the compass course? Or would you follow the path? That path is that, that, that opportunity. That it's, it's, now, it may go, walk, go off at some weird wonky angle and take you away from point B, and that's it, not good for you. But you can always depart from it at that point and follow a compass again. So I, I think you got to have a plan. It gives your life momentum. It gives it some traction. And it gives you a purpose and milestones and, you know, some way to check your, your advancing towards something that you, that you value. But you can't miss the path. Sometimes there's just this, there's a path sitting there. And if you, if you study bio, um, biographies of famous people that are, that are successful, there's a lot of those moments in those lives. Everybody just assumes they just woke up one day and everything was right in front of them and they went to a good school, got a good job. And in most cases, it's nothing like that. I mean, Bill Gates just quitting college. You know, I mean, almost everybody quit college. All these, you know, Michael Dell, all these guys just quit college. And just jumped in back of a car or went into a garage and just started doing something. So, yeah, it's it it it's just something you got to keep your eyes open for. Well, speaking of following your path and doing something, let's pick up on when you were doing seminars and things were picking up for you. What what happened next? When did you get to the point where you said, you know what? I want to be just full-fledged entrepreneur. Well, the way that industry works, you you were an entrepreneur. So the first company I worked for was Lake Mason Wood Walker in home based in Baltimore. So you were on your own as far as um, if you wanted to buy business cards, if you wanted to have business cards, you wanted to have brochures, they de- they deducted it from your from your compensation. Your compensation was based on your selling. It wasn't based on a salary. So these are all things I didn't understand at the time, but you had to basically construct a business, like a solo practitioner business. Your support structure was the company. And there were some situations, like if you got a a pretty big uh, prospect that wanted something that was fairly complex and beyond my ability to analyze or to to, create a plan for, I could reach back into the estate planning division, or I could reach back into the, you know, the fixed income division and they'd come in and they, they do all that work for me. They wouldn't take my, my client away from me, but they do all that work for me and they wouldn't charge me anything usually, but sometimes they would charge a percentage of whatever the first deposit of assets were. So you had to figure out, do I really want to bring these guys in or not? I'm giving up some of this. Yeah, it was, it was a very entrepreneurial situation. And then you had to manage your time. And eventually I hired people, their benefits and their salary came out of my compensation. And so if you want to get bigger, it's like a, like a real business. It's coming out of your, your pocket. There's no magical, magical fountain of money. That's going to pay for these extra people. The the company wasn't going to, and I I did that. Uh, I think probably I felt I had a handle on it about nine, 10 months into the first year. And I really felt I had a handle on it at the end of the second year. Sometime in the third year, I, I went to United Bank of Switzerland and became a portfolio manager. Same kind of business, just a little bit different focus. And I was able to refine my business model and kind of pick who my client was going to be by kind of a profile and become more selective, get bigger, bigger clients. And that's what I did you know, all the way through the end of this seven and a half years all in between the two companies. So I felt very comfortable being an entrepreneur at that, at that one year point, maybe. And the other thing I'm, I'm interacting with most of my clients were self-made millionaires. And how do they do that business? I would go golfing with these guys, or I'd go have a you know breakfast with these guys. And it was like sitting at the knee of, of every businessman in America and every kind of business you can think of dry cleaning and jiffy lubes and restaurants and car dealerships. And, and I mean, I didn't know about those things coming out of the Navy, but seven and a half years of listening to all that and listening, most of them had been bankrupt a couple of times, listening to those stories, how they recovered from it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, um, it was a very, very good education in American business at almost every kind of size you can think of. And then I, and I left the business when nine 11 happened. So 
at this point, how so you are like the CEO of three different companies. You talk a lot about your experiences meeting other CEOs, entrepreneurs, people in business, and how you also talk about learning just all those tools like hiring people and everything else. I mean, at this point, like how how do you juggle all that and make it work and maintain all that success with all this stuff going on? Well, I was a in in the enterprise I'm I'm in charge of right now. I was a uh, an equity partner in a government contracting company that was only doing about six million a year, and we grew it to about 34, 35 million a year in about four years after I joined. And then we sold it to the employees and the founder partner went on to do other things with his life. And part of the deal was the underwriter said I had to stay for three years. So I got the check for being, you know, a part owner in the business, but then I, I stayed as the CEO, which I, I was the president before that my, uh, my partner was in and out but I was kind of the day-to-day guy running it. And um, I decided that we needed to diversify away from government contracting. I convinced my board and we bought a, uh, a healthcare company that had one employee and 26 doctors and nurses that were kind of temporarily working for them. And, uh, and they were in about a 20 mile radius of Richmond, Virginia. So that was a complete, really a complete startup. There was no process. There were no processes. There were no procedures, nothing written down. They didn't have any infrastructure. It was just the one guy. Uh, he did whatever had to be done. He was recruiting one day, the next day he was trying to uh, sell what he was doing to, to a client building. And he just kind of jumped around all over the place. So I created the platform. I created the business model. I created the, the marketing model. And I took some of the people from the government contracting company, repurposed them. And they were some of them were already recruiters just for a different industry. And that was that was a cold start, pretty much enterprise. That's that's uh, about 168 employees in seven states now, five years later. So that worked out pretty well. But the 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 learning curve in that for me was so much different than what I described as a solo practitioner managing money. Because I, w- I incrementally grew and I got to a point where I had too many clients and I had too many prospects f- for me to handle. And I had to make a decision that I had to hire somebody in to help and pay for that person out of my own pocket. And I had to, so I was basically going to take a loss in personal income before I ever saw the benefits of bringing in somebody to help me. In this case, we had so much business coming through the door that I had to really start getting smart about how I was going to scale and grow this thing. Because if I grew too fast, I'd be spending too much cash too early. And if I didn't add enough people, I'd burn out the people I had and they'd quit. So, um, and then if I told everybody that wanted, wanted our, uh, our service, why don't you wait six months? Well, then I might, I might blow that opportunity too. So it was, a, it was a real balancing act, a different kind of balancing act. And, but everything any entrepreneur would want because I'd never been in a situation where it was all, demand side problem. It was all about quote unquote order fulfillment. Like I I tell people, it's like, you know, you think you're going to sell 10 hula hoops a week and you got a, you've got a supplier that can get you enough plastic for you to create, you know, 15 hula hoops a week. So you got a surplus of five. And then you look at your screen, you got an order for 40,000 hula hoops and you're like, "Uh Oh, <laughs> and then can, can my supplier give me enough plastic or do I need 15 more suppliers or n- another supplier that's huge? You know, how, how I don't have a big enough factory. I don't have enough people. That's how this was. It was, it was completely, how are we going to keep up with, I mean, we've never had any salespeople. We, never, we don't do marketing or promotion or advertising. Absolutely against everything I'd ever seen before. But I hear about, I hear those stories from time to time. And I, I, I now I can, you know, empathize with them. So, you, um, you know, it's not so much a juggling. I, I focused on that. My chief operating officer focused on the government contracting company. We created a management holding company in 2018. I moved up to that position, 
to, to, to run both those operating businesses, the healthcare and the government contracting business, and also kind of look at the bigger strategy. And um, eventually we were big enough that I could have a president that could run the healthcare thing without me having to be in there all the time making decisions. And so I kind of stayed floated up to the CEO level at the holding company position and became more of the pure strategist and the resources officer. Like if we needed more money, we needed more fuel for the growth, I would go to the board or I would go to potential lenders and say, hey, I was the pitch guy to try to explain why we would need it. And that's not necessarily a full-time job, like sitting at a desk with somebody else telling you to do stuff. Your, your time's kind of in your own hands. But, you know, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, I, I put in the book, Be Nimble. So um, the people that worked with me and people I was mentoring, I'd never written any of the stuff down that I was sharing with them or helping them with. And so I decided I get it all in the book. And um, that's kind of my my life philosophy and my business philosophy, at least from the, from leading and, and challenging circumstances point of view. Well, I definitely feel like you are yet, it's amazing to me as I do this show and I meet more and more people, it, this show accomplishes exactly what I wanted to accomplish, just the range and like how people become an entrepreneur like it's not like necessarily although you get a lot of uh, creation throughout your career in this you know in some cases you just kind of like worked your way to eventually being that person who uh, could you know you weren't even president anymore you were actually CEO and that's just remarkable to me it's Remarkable how many different ways people can become an entrepreneur and not everybody can necessarily do it the way you did it, but it's still amazing to me just how you can accomplish that and how you can find your way and not just in the entrepreneurial world, but just in this world, period. So really amazing and just your intelligence and abilities just uh off the charts in my opinion not to be patronizing i guess but um wow yeah i i guess that's why i do this show i'm i'm very <laughs> impressed with your story and you also had me looking up the word nimble while you were talking and i think it says a lot about you, I can see why you chose being nimble as your book title. Nimble is quick and light and moving or action agile and quick to comprehend uh, of, of the mind, quick to comprehend. That I think really, it, it doesn't completely sum you up, but I think that really sums you up pretty well. I don't know if that like if somebody advised you on that or if you were just like, you know, I'm a nimble guy. That doesn't sound like something you would think, <laughs> but uh, I, no. I think it sums you up very well. No, I, uh, I, I was stunned that the publisher didn't try to change the title. I mean, the full title is Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. And they didn't change a word of the title or the subtitle. I went, okay. Um, the second book that comes out in December is called Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. And that's more about thinking big thoughts and, and planning and looking for opportunities on the horizon and not living just in the day-to-day, -day, you know, kind of blue-collar nug effort to improve KPIs and, and get every little measure just a little bit better. It's the exact opposite of Lean Six Sigma, which is all about high efficiency in the moment. It's more about, you know, Christopher Columbus or something, you know, there's something out there, I can't see it, but the only way I'm gonna find it is to think about it, plan for it, maybe go out a little ways and see if it's out there. And I think that's missing in business today. And I, that's what the second book is all about. And as far as I'm concerned, I feel like you need to continue the 
to be this, be that. Like, again, I feel like be visionary. Like that, I think that really sums up another part of you. And yeah, being nimble, like just looking up. Because we hear the word nimble and we hear words, we use them. We don't actually look at, always look at like what they truly mean. And just looking at the definition of nimble, I'm like, yeah, that, I think that really sums up a big part of you. So, um, yeah, just, I, I'm really impressed with uh, how you've built up your life, how you've uh, overcome a lot of obstacles we didn't even get into, like half of some of the stuff that I read up on and uh, just amazing how you've overcome what you have and have maintained resilience, a great attitude, and have kept your life right on going and have had so much success. I mean, truly inspiring to me. And uh, I thank you very much for taking some time out to tell your story. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun. So before we go, A, what's next for you? And B, how can people find your book? How can they work with you? How can they hire you as a speaker? How can they get in touch with you? Sure. A couple different ways. Um, the easiest way to, to get access to my books and just a couple of keystrokes is to go to my author website, martystrongbnimble.com. My articles are there, little bio, some excerpts from some of the books. And uh, at the bottom, there's you can, you'll can you see the, the covers of my books. You can just click on that. That'll take you straight to Amazon.com. Uh, if you Google Marty Strong, about the first nine or 10 pages are all my, a lot of interviews and, again, kind of access to where the books are. So that's those two are the kind of easiest ways to, um, to get access to my material and my stuff. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, as far as contacting me, you know, my email is S-A-G-A perform at yahoo.com at saga perform for, you know, speaking gigs, things like that. There's also, I think, a link on my author website that you can, you can put uh, requests in or just send me messages. So those are all the ways to get a hold of me. They all work. Awesome. Well, Marty Strong, CEO extraordinaire, author, speaker, retired SEAL. Thank you so much for being on Mark My Words. I'm Mark Schmidt, and you can find me as Mark Schmidt on LinkedIn. Come connect with me. I'm always talking about entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on my mind, come connect. Uh, you can find me on social media. I'm Nimrod1979. I, you, know, you can find that on Twitter, Instagram. I'm also at Mark My Words on Instagram as well. And Nimrod is basically, I've, I've been a huge Green Day fan my whole life. I feel like I tell this story every episode, but probably should set up a recording so I don't have to do that. But until I do that, that's basically the story behind my personal handle. So come find me on social media. Even more importantly, go find today's guest, Marty Strong. He was awesome. Thank you very much, Marty. And thank you all for listening. That's Mark My Words. And I'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you. Thanks again for taking time out of your busy day to listen to Mark My Words. If you would like to connect with me beyond the show, you can find me on LinkedIn at Mark Schmidt, where I will be talking about entrepreneurship, careers, and anything else that is on my mind. You can also connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Nimrod1979 and Nimrod sending I respectively. This podcast also has a page 
on Instagram at MarkMyWords. And finally, if you want to leave me a voicemail or check out what I'm up to with the podcast, come find me at podpage.com slash mark dash my dash words. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soon. Bye for now. Bye.